Hello and welcome to Navara FM, brought to you by Navara Media and broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. I am James Butler. It is one year since the Grenfell Tower fire and it's hard to see much justice. The fire was the most deadly in living memory. It resulted in the deaths of 72 people. And although in its immediate aftermath it looked like a light was being shone on some of the conditions that gave rise to the fire, especially on the state of social housing in Britain, the immediate concern seems, at least to me, to have been transformed into an orgy of buck-passing and self-exculpation. Joining me to discuss Grenfell and its aftermath are two journalists who've both done excellent and detailed work on the fire and the wi- wider housing question. Uh, Dawn Foster, who is a Guardian columnist and familiar to many listeners of this show, and Luke Barrett, who has done incredible work pursuing and reporting the causes, failures and outcomes behind the Grenfell Tower fire. Welcome. Before the fire, the Grenfell Action Group wrote on their blog, it is a truly terrifying thought, but the Grenfell Action Group firmly believe that only a catastrophic event will expose the ineptitude and incompetence of our landlord, the KCTMO, and bring an end to the dangerous living conditions and neglect of health and safety legislation that they inflict upon their tenants and leaseholders. Those words are chilling and they're horribly prophetic, and yet it's far from clear to me that even this catastrophic event has probably focused minds. I want to start with the sense among survivors and local residents about what's happened in the year past and what uh, their sense was about the responses to the fire. Yeah, sure. So I suppose um, one of the key things that survivors of the Grenfell Tower have pursued um, is ensuring that this disaster doesn't happen again elsewhere. They've been really focused on what has been done to ensure that other tower blocks around the country are made safe. Mm -hmm. Uh, They've focused a lot on uh, building regulations and uh, policy changes uh, to affect that. Um, But so far, progress has been pretty slow uh, on that count. So um, we're still in a situation... Well, so after the fire, we found that uh, the government said 159 other social housing tower blocks have the same kind of cladding uh, as Grenfell Tower, and 138 private tower blocks have the same cladding. And we know that only 10 of the social housing tower blocks have had that cladding replaced. Uh, We don't have any information on the private tower blocks. Um, And furthermore, information has recently come to light that suggests that there may be even more towers with this cladding on it because there's no obligation for private owners to tell the government Mm. that they have this stuff on their buildings. And it's uh, one of the things that's really frustrating about that in particular is that at the moment, if you know that there is this cladding on the outside, there's no real there's no real pressure to get rid of it. Um, the residents want it removed uh, often. Um, there's a Luke will remember the name of the development, but there's a very big development in uh, southeast London. Uh, you're talking about New Capital Key in Greenwich. Yeah, so New Capital Key in Greenwich. Uh, brilliantly metaphoric name. Great, wonderful. Um, <laughs> it has the exact same cladding as Grenfell. Um, the residents there are absolutely terrified. There is a 24-hour fire warden going round at the moment and it hasn't been changed because the people who built it, you know, point out that they followed the building regulations that the government, you know, put in place and the government aren't doing anything about it. So there is this massive buck passing constantly mm. and you know, some of it is housing association, some of it is privately rented, some of it is, you know, owned by people. And the people who own their properties had them valued recently. They bought homes through the help to buy scheme. So 
big bit of government money sunk into each mortgage. And I think when they got them valued, they'd gone from roughly about £400,000 to apparently being worth 32000 and nobody's going to buy them. Yeah, so there's yeah. now these you know, young professional couples, a lot of them have kids, who've used the government help to buy a scheme, um, are having to pay back this mortgage, mm. and there's no way they can sell. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. what happened? I mean, it's just constant butt passing. And we, I certainly, we heard from government that there was going to be a big effort to deal with this cladding in, in uh, you know, across the country. And, the, you know, it was a... Uh, sort of actually reasonably quick, right, that that at least the statements in Parliament were made. What has happened with that? Because I I know that there was, what, 400 million, um, or the the claim was that they were going to allocate 400 million to deal with this. What's happening with that? Well, so that's the very recent uh, announcement that they're going to fund all cladding replacement, Mm. which it should be said they didn't say they were going to do until, uh, what was it, a couple of weeks ago. Um... We still haven't heard anything about how that funding is going to be accessed. Mm-hmm. You know, there are social landlords who I speak to who are saying, oh, great, the government's going to fund our removal of dangerous cladding. How? When? Mm-hmm. When's it going to happen? Most people think 400 million is quite a dramatic underestimate mm-hmm. of how much it's going to cost. Um, so it'll be really interesting to see how that turns out. Um, yeah, I mean, the, just everything the government has done just seems minuscule and um, I know that when Grenfell happened we had a newish housing minister and you know government have gone through so many housing ministers since 2010 and this you know um, Alok Sharma just didn't appear to do anything like I was at Tory party conference trying to find him uh, basically running from room to room that he was advertised in and each time he'd cancelled and it felt as though the government were trying to you know stop people having access to the ministers because we were going to ask policy questions we were going to ask about actual action plans and it seems as if uh, a headline with a couple of million is what they want mm-hmm. um to you know to get in the newspapers but they will not be drawn on what that means and there's a lot of kind of social housing providers who are genuinely terrified of you know what could happen and what their liabilities are and you know the anger of their residents um i mean i think about camden so shortly after Grenfell Tower, um, it was put, you know, Camden found out that they had some of the cladding on one of their towers. There were also concerns um, that some of the building uh, work hadn't been carried out as as they believed it had, and Camden just you know evacuated the building. It was quite chaotic. A lot of people were very angry, but they evacuated the building, took off the cladding, renovated it, um, and replaced all the fire doors. So you know that that's that's an instance of one council doing that running in deciding that we can't risk the safety but there's no real pressure on anybody else to do that and as well as social housing um what hasn't really been talked about is that there's cladding everywhere so you've got private student blocks almost every pfi hospital thank you tony blair is covered in this stuff and what do you do yeah yeah it's interesting you mentioned fire doors as well because Mm. the government said it'll pay for cladding removal and replacement it said nothing about fire doors fire doors reportedly are one of the most serious issues Mm. in tower blocks around the country and as well one of the most serious issues at grenfell tower where they failed to stop smoke from escaping from the flats into the stairwell Mm. making escape almost impossible and whose responsibility is it because so you mentioned the council camden council Mm. there and one of the senses i get from and i you know we'll come on to talk i think about about uh culpability or or, you know where responsibility lies all these arguments about who's responsible for what but just on that narrow question who has 
you know, the power here to deal with this stuff. Because so you say Camden Council have have taken action on this. Um, and is you know, do you see responsibility as lying with sort of central government or or with with local government? I think the issue is that as with everything, everybody's passing it around. Uh, it feels as if you know the state have tried to withdraw from so many things that now nobody knows whose responsibility anything is. So in Kensington, we had the Kensington Chelsea Tenant Management Organisation, which wasn't actually a tenant management organisation; it was an Almo. But um, you know, and it feels that everyone's trying to withdraw, and uh, you know, a lot a lot of the so-called bonfire of red, red tape in 2011 was about kind of stripping back a lot of these uh, fire safety issues and you know it, it, it feels as though the government are desperate to kind of withdraw the state from everywhere and then that means that when things go wrong whose responsibility is it nobody knows and you know we have we have landlords saying it should be the governments the government saying it should be the landlords uh, and then you know some of the some of the landlords and the government saying it should be the people who built the towers the contractors and at least when it comes to social housing tower blocks mm. you can say you've got this local authority who owns yeah. them and they have a responsibility to their residents when it comes to private tower blocks there's really nobody who has mm. that sense of responsibility freeholders mm. So the, the people who own the, these tower blocks are telling the leaseholders who live in the building, we're going to charge you each £35,000 mm. or something to replace yeah. this cladding. These people don't have that kind of money, so it, it's yeah. not going to get done. And you have you have people who've bought mortgages who are then, you know, uh, told that perhaps it's their responsibility, you know, to pay this, to get it done, etc. But if they've been sold a home that they think is fire safe, why should they pick up the buck when it turns out that actually the regulations were not sufficient at all they could be living in a fire trap and you know what they bought wasn't what they thought they were being sold one of the the, the things that have come has come under kind of significant fire is the situation with rehousing for mm. people who are both survivors of the fire but those who've been displaced from uh, the estates adjoining grenfell as well it, I, as i understand it there are there are what there are still a huge number of families who aren't in kind of permanent accommodation who are either in emergency or temporary accommodation. What's going on with that? Why hasn't that been done? Um, to be honest, this isn't something that I've, I've focused on um, to a great um, extent. Um, but it seems like the council had a very restricted pool of properties that they were yeah. willing to um, offer to residents mm-hmm. and a lot of them kind of didn't meet the requirements of residents. So for example, some initially some people were offered homes in tower blocks, which is obviously unsuitable for people <laughs> coming out of Grenfell Tower. Um, some people reportedly were offered mm. homes in other boroughs. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah this, is, this is a community that wants to stay together. Yeah, I mean, it's there's a couple of things going on. One is that Obviously, Kensington had spent a long time trying to sell off as much social housing as they could. And that means that when you suddenly need to rehouse, you know, they were struggling to rehouse, you know, a standard family. So if you suddenly need to rehouse, uh, you know, close to 300 households, you know, from Grenfell and the surrounding estate, then that's almost impossible. Um, You know, Saji Javed uh, apparently told the council to get on right move and they've been looking at buying private properties. and there's been a you know a lot of what a lot of what people are offered is completely inadequate. So as well as the tower blocks, um, you know, several people who had mobility issues or were in wheelchairs uh, were offered 
properties upstairs with no lifts yeah. uh, and it's impossible to live there some of the accommodation uh, temporary accommodation that people have found themselves in has unsafe balconies and they've got children or it has mold and nobody should live in a home full of mold um, and then on top of that you've got the bidding system so mm. people have to bid for properties and that's been really upsetting and you know for survivors as well they want um, you know the people who've been evacuated from the finger blocks are at lower priority than the Grenfell Tower survivors. And then you have people who've been through absolute hell, who've lost their neighbours, who saw their home on fire. What, you know, every time every time they turned on the television, you know, they they they, they were re-traumatised by what yeah. they saw. And then you're asking them to bid against their neighbours. Yeah. So you're essentially putting people who've been for a huge amount want to stay together in competition with each other they want to they want to live near their family they, they want to live near their neighbors they don't want to leave the borough but a lot of people have been offered homes outside of the borough and felt very very pressured to take those homes it's really interesting actually when you listen to ministers uh, kind of explain the reasons that rehousing mm. hasn't happened they say things like oh we haven't been able to find residents homes that they like or yeah. homes that, yeah. they're, that they're going to enjoy living mm. in like Whereas these issues that that you're talking about are not issues of personal preference. They're about how you form an effective community. Yeah, it definitely feels... I've heard lots of uh, politicians now um, you know, both in the in the council, but also nationally, try you know very sneakily trying to imply that these people are holding out for mm. five bed mansions uh, on on the uh, you know in in the immediate vicinity of Grenfell Tower, which just isn't true. Um, and also, I think what one thing that they either don't understand or don't want to understand is that these people are in very, very precarious positions. They were sat in a hotel, and they and the first worry was that if, if they were rehoused, the tenancy would not be the same kind of tenancy as they had before. A lot of people had very secure tenancies. They'd lived in Grenfell for 10, 15 years, longer often. Um, they were worried they'd be offered kind of uh, short hold tenancies, you know, that, that were up for renewal every year. They were worried about the level of rent. And a lot of these people felt that if they accepted the first thing that was offered to them, that was it. They had no other choice. So people right. are very, very nervous about what situation they're going to end up in. And, you know, constantly trying to second guess the council, um, having to take legal advice when they look at this. Um, and, you know, it took a while for the council to uh, say that they would offer rent on the same terms. And then even then they were quite cagey about the details within that. Yeah, I mean, there was a piece in Guardian this morning just aggregating some responses. And one of the... one. Uh, piece pointed out that for some of the people who are displaced from the kind of local estates, not Grenfell Tower itself, but those who are uh, adjoining, um, you know, had assumed that they would keep their council rents Mm. um, permanently. But the council is now saying, oh, well, actually, you know, maybe it's going to end soon, right? No, Mm. you know, we can't uh, guarantee kind of council level rents for everyone, as you say. You know, the wider problem of short-term tenancy... um, agreements in this situation is mm. you know it seems only to compound there's just so much in- insensitivity as well i mean the council need to be a lot more careful and a lot more sensitive and think deeply about what each of their policy decisions will mean psychologically and emotionally for people and i just i remember about a month after grenfell tower happened um a number of people found that rent had been taken out of their mm, bank accounts yes. you know and it would have taken two it would have taken a few minutes simply to put a stop on those direct debits and nobody thought of it 
and everybody was rem- was reminded of it again. And this kind of second guessing of the council that you're talking about, it seems to me to speak to the fact that there is an enduring and, and pre-existing problem here that people, you know, are suspicious of, you know, <laughs> Kensington and Chelsea Council, that they that actually, that, that it, you know, out of a long-standing sense, they don't have their interests at heart. You know, this plays into, you know, the way in which they're, they're going to interact with the council. And I think some of the emails that have recently been revealed, you know, of, of internal correspondence between the, the now-departed uh, leader of the council at the time shows that there is this awareness um, that, 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 the, that people there don't trust them. You know, frankly, from my perspective, for very good reason. Well, it's very natural, obviously, yeah. after, after the fire. And I think it's something the council doesn't really hasn't really shown any sign that it understands even if it doesn't agree obviously with the fact that they're not trusted mm. it should be a feeling that they can at least understand yes. is there yeah. Yeah. um but when you go to uh kind of meetings where residents try to resolve their issues with the council that there, there really is a an understanding gap um where councillors don't seem like mm. they're willing to meet residents where they are mm. Some of the meetings as well, it's, um, I mean, if you really wanted to understand the relationship between the survivors and the local residents and the council, you have to see them and you have to see them interact in person. Mm-hmm. And some of the some of the early meetings were just completely diabolical. So first council meeting I went to was when the Guardian and the Times and Channel 4 had to get an injunction because they wanted to ban the media. Mm-hmm. We were hammering on the door. We had the injunction. We were like, you have to let us in. Uh, eventually the open door let us in and immediately adjourned the meeting because they didn't want the media in there. And then the next meeting... Um, loads and loads of people came you had to pre-register so um i turned up with lots of other people um and there were a lot of survivors there who wanted to speak um not all the survivors were allowed in the room they uh, you know it took about an hour for the meeting to start because there was so 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 much fierce argument so the council decided some of the survivors could come in the others could sit on a balcony and you know again it's wildly insensitive to say that you know to basically kind of form a hierarchy of survivors and say you only want to hear from some and the mood of the room was you know terrible people were devastated and they were and they were you know speaking about what had happened and what they'd lost and what they, what their fears were and there were just simply a lot of you know, conservative councillors who either look bored, some of them were uh, complaining and they were caught on, on you know, camera complaining about about the behaviour of the survivors and the fact that the survivors were trying to get in. And then they locked the fire doors to stop people from getting into the meeting. Wow. And at that point, at that point, there was just mass panic in the room. Um, several people just started crying and it just seemed as though the council were behaving as though they were you know, parenting young children and completely exasperated with them. There was no, you know, there was no attempt at empathy. And it seemed bizarre, I mean, it seemed bizarre that that would happen, but it also seemed bizarre that they didn't really seem to have any fear of the fact that there were a lot of press in the room watching Mm -hmm. this going on who were clearly going to report that this was the, you know, the state of play there. Right, and it strikes me that throughout that there there has been this this sense that the residents are, are not, People with and it, and you know it's been reflected in a, a lot of the kind of recent press coverage, which I'm sure we'll come on to talk about. Um, that the residents are not people with political agency of their own, but are you know a problem to be managed. And this is reflective, I think, in of, of quite a lot of you know local governments' attitude to their residents, particularly the ones who speak up or, or make a fuss. 
um, that, that these are people who, who shouldn't be involving themselves in politics in the way that, that they are. And that doesn't seem to have changed. It seems to have been there before the fire and it seems to have continued afterwards. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I think that's been my experience of going to these meetings. I mean, even some of the, the later on ones yeah. when... Um, some of the initial kind of anger had died down and, and some of the residents were basically just focused on trying to find homes for themselves and make sure that their their families were, were all right. Um, I went to one of these meetings where one of the councillors on the committee spent the whole time on his phone and didn't look up once to speak to anyone. One of the survivors came up and, and called him out for it and the rest of the councillors on the committee all suddenly stood up and, and defended the, this guy who's, who was on his phone and, and treated this guy for calling him out as, as totally unreasonable. Mm, no, and I mean, I... Uh, they all... I mean, they also try and claim it's really, really party political, mm-hmm. the attacks they get from residents. Um, I mean, the residents and the locals have a very wide range of political opinions, but I mean, I was speaking to um, a priest who lives, you know, works in the borough recently and you know we've had uh we speak a lot we've had a lot of disagreements uh politically um and he just said to me the other day that he you know even though he is a conservative he he can't get over how cold the council are he said that seeing whenever he sees them whenever he interacts with them um they're fine with him when they speak to survivors and local residents it's they're completely cold they don't know how to how to speak to these people um and they literally treat them uh, treat them as other so they can interact fine with somebody they think is on the same page as them um you know same social class but they turn into these kind of automatons Mm -hmm. uh, and that continues to be an issue and that's not party political that's you know a lot of the conservative people I've spoken to in the borough say exactly that they're really surprised by how badly it was all handled and surprised by how there continues to be no real improvement uh, in the relationship because the conservatives simply don't seem to want it. I want to talk a bit about so now we have this inquiry um is led by uh, Judge Martin Morbick, um, about whom uh, some survivors and core participants have expressed their reservations. There is now apparently going to be a, a, another, you know, some other people sitting on the panel as well, I think, um, after after significant lobbying. Um, but it, it, it seems to me that... And so the terms of reference of this inquiry are quite narrowly drawn, right? So they don't include social housing policy, they don't include the kind of wider kind of structural questions they that it's a very specific thing on how you know what happened uh, how the fire came to you know spread in the way it did you know and ultimately sort of determine you know things about the response and government response um and luke i know you've done sort of quite a lot of digging on sort of technical details here and i you know it's really impressive work one of the things i think you mentioned uh is that the manufacturer, Rydon, or not manufacturer, the people who are responsible. The principal for the, contractor. Yeah, the contractor. They, in their recent accounts, they've said they expect no kind of uh, financial blowback from, so no fine. Mm, yeah, it was really interesting yeah. um, because obviously that's the main punishment from corporate manslaughter. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess we're talking about the inquiry, but there's also this criminal yeah. investigation running alongside it, which seems far wider in its scope and um, a much larger endeavour. Um, and yeah, Rydon obviously would be one of the people that the police would be would be looking into. Um, but yeah, really interesting that they don't mm. seem to think that mm. there's much likelihood of, of, of being issued with a fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think this is, you know, there, there does seem to be across the board this expectation that actually they've more or less got away with it. 
Um, now I know that the you know the police say it's going to take a long time, and I do think it is you know I <laughs> you know it's a hugely kind of complex uh, thing to put together you know criminal proceedings in such a case. It does seem to me that that a lot of the attention, both in press and you know from 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 both politicians and police, has been now directed towards one the kind of the, the smattering of fraudulent claims that that arose in the wake of the fire so people who pretended to be survivors etc um you know which is a thing that happens in in major disasters right this is not an uncommon thing uh, and now it seems to be directed especially at the fire brigade as well right so the, they seem to have alighted on you know the stay put advice so this is the advice that was the standard advice um, that the fire brigade gives in in fires like this, which is for people to stay put, and it seems to be that that this is going to be the thing that's going to be the 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 excuse or the the response to any kind of murmuring about uh, manslaughter charges. Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, firstly, corporate manslaughter is, I mean, the laws around corporate manslaughter basically make it almost impossible to prosecute, which is a big issue. Mm. Um, but I was surprised by the glee with which a lot of people jumped on that um, on that part of the fire brigade. Uh, so essentially, I mean, I thought this might happen anyway. But essentially, the uh, I should point out is no, there's no criticism from uh, the inquiry or the criminal investigation about the the firefighters themselves. It's about decision making at senior management level, um, and the stay put policy is a good policy if you are in a building that isn't structurally compromised. So with a lot of these tower blocks, um, essentially you have lots of different flats that function as a concrete box that is self-contained so that if there is a fire in my flat, it will it, it will just burn within there. It will not spread. Um, and the issue is that it, um, it became very, very clear that the fire had spread and therefore the building was structurally compromised, therefore they should have Mm -hmm. gone straight for evacuation. Um, So there will be investigations into who decided to keep the safe put policy Mm -hmm. in place and at what point they decided not to and what information they got later that Mm -hmm. stopped them Mm -hmm. from doing it earlier. Um, And it's exactly the same thing that happened at Lackanel House in 2009. So that, again, was a structurally compromised building that had been through renovation, you know, I think it was three families, 12 people in total, who uh, stayed put and died as a result. Mm-hmm. Um, so I worry that, that the fact that we've had two of these fires where stay put was, you know, erroneously held in place means means that the wider public, you know, don't have a huge understanding of the stay put policy mm-hmm. and will endanger themselves if they try and leave. Mm-hmm. In, in terms of the focus having been on stay put so far, mm. um, I think that is partly due to the way the inquiry is structured because yeah. phase one is um, exactly what happened on the night and then phase two is why did the fire spread? Yeah. Yeah. So I think we won't really see any actual in-depth analysis of the construction of the building mm-hmm. until yeah. until then, which probably won't be until 2019. Um so I, w- I wasn't so surprised that there's been quite a lot of stuff about stay put. What, what did surprise me slightly is the police um, announcing that they were investigating LFB for this yeah. on the day yeah. of all this evidence coming out that at the inquiry. Um, it seemed like quite odd timing and also a bit of a weird topic for the police yeah. to be pursuing, especially since the LFB has actually been uh, working quite closely with the police mm. on the investigation into the fire. Yeah, I mean... I found that very odd. I was in the newsroom and several colleagues came over and asked me as well because they were confused by it. Um, I think some of the media focus on 
the fire brigade investigation and stay put is partly down to the fact that obviously there's been a huge amount of focus on uh, on the building, what role kind of gas safety, cladding, fire doors had, what role the political decisions and the re- regeneration decisions had. Um, and I think a lot, I think there is a tendency amongst some uh, people of certain political persuasions to basically want to blame other people. So if if you can say, well, if the fire brigade hadn't had to say put policy, almost everyone would have survived. Um, they feel it exonerates every, everybody else. Whereas I think the very important thing to think about with Grenfell Tower is when it comes to the investigation and the um, inquiry, it should be pointed out that the reason Grenfell happened is because there were multiple failings every step of the way in terms of social policy in terms of social housing in terms of building in terms of the emergency services response you know every the reason Grenfell happened is because almost you know hundreds of hundreds of things came together to make the worst possible scenario and I don't think that we should just be you know, pointing at one, so you know, I'm, 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 I'm not likely to say it's a cladding. That was it. Mm. Everything went wrong, and it was like it's a culmination of forty years of uh, deregulation, privatization, kind of the state withdrawing um, from uh, from housing, from communities, from all sorts of things. So, I think a lot of people wanted to pin it on one thing to deflect attention from something else, but. I think we need to look at everything. All buildings need to be safer. All people should be listened to within local authorities. Local authorities should have more money and be able to function properly. And national government need to look at the human impact of their policies. Yeah, and, and on stay put as well, I think there's been um, something of a widespread acceptance that, yes, obviously, mm. if they'd abandoned stay put, loads more people would have survived the fire. And I don't think that's necessarily no. true. There, there, are, there were lots of people, first of all, on high blocks yeah. in the t- high floors in the tower who couldn't have got down those mm. stairs in the best of conditions because yeah. they were disabled or elderly mm. um, or children. Um, and as it was, there was only a narrow stairwell to escape yeah. from, which was filled with smoke. And in some places, incredibly high heats. Mm. Um, so it, it was quite unrealistic to think if they just abandoned yeah. stay put, everyone would have got out. Yeah. There, there are some questions to be asked, I think, you know, maybe like about whether it was the right idea mm. to have stay put there the whole time. But I don't think it's an open and shut case. No, completely. And I actually went to Grenfell Tower um, two years before the fire um, in the course of a story I was writing. And the lift broke. And I was on maybe the seventh floor and went into the stairwell. It's about a metre wide. Every time I came across somebody, I had to turn to the side to let them pass. If they decided to evacuate it, um, there may, you know, there may well have been more lives saved. But equally, there were a lot of people, as Luke said, in wheelchairs who had young babies who were, you know, um, not that mobile. And if you then evacuate, you have a very, very narrow stairwell that, is filled with smoke. A lot of people have passed out. You could have had a crush scenario. There's and a lot then, of firefighters coming yeah, up. Yeah, there's a lot of firefighters time. coming up. And if all of a sudden, you know, I, I don't think it's cut and shut that everybody would have been able to get out. It was very difficult for people who, you know, the people who did decide to get out were tripping over bodies. They couldn't see. They got completely lost. Um, you know, smoke inhalation kind of absolutely messes with your sense of perception as well. So we could have just had a crush scenario and we could have ended up you know, um, there are. It's almost impossible to say what would have happened, but you know, 
the stairwell was failing entirely. Um, it's supposed to be fire safe. It's supposed to, you know, remain cool. It wasn't. It was boiling hot. Uh, the fire doors weren't working. It was filled with smoke. It was filled with bodies. And it may it may well have been the case that it just stopped more firefighters, you know, getting into the building. And so our sense is that we will get probably more a sense of exactly what the faults were in the building in phase two of this inquiry, mm, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's going to... Because it seems to me that there is a, there's already a kind of popular narrative uh, among sections of the press, certainly, that, that it's just the cladding. The cladding is the thing that was the major problem. And there's no question... And then, then you read accounts of, you know, people who are living there during the refurbishment where mm. they talk about, you know, having appliances blow out and having, you know you know, worrying about electrics and gas safety and stuff like that. So do you think we're going to see, you know, a, a, a kind of a much more, you know, a broad sense of how, how the fire happened, how it spread during as, as the inquiry goes on? I think we will. I think the expert reports that have been issued to the inquiry so far do indicate that the cladding was the primary reason yeah. that the yeah, fire yeah, yeah. spread. Um, but already I think there's there's been uh, some complication of that narrative. So the material that's been used in the windows mm. uh, has become particularly problematic because that's, it seems, the way that the fire spread from where it started in the kitchen of flat 16 on, on floor four uh, to get to the cladding. It had to go via the window and it seems to have done this incredibly quickly so that by the mm. time the first firefighters arrived the whole mm. the entire window was already destroyed and embers were falling from the cladding and setting fire to different parts of the building yeah and um i mean immediately after the, well at, so 2 p.m after after the fire i spoke to um i spoke to a gentleman who had basically set up um, a kind of informal resident association and he showed me a um, written report that he had given verbally to the council at a meeting in January and he highlighted multiple, multiple problems with um, with the inside of it. What And one of the big issues that he talked about was the fact that when they had their kitchens refurbished, they had... Um, basically like big gas pipes and uh you know box and and boilers uh in the corridor immediately outside uh outside their door and he said that basically kids would run around and play in the corridors and they just kept hitting their heads they kept hurting themselves on them but also all the pipes were exposed and they were outside and you know they were they were all they were a bit concerned about how, whether or not this was safe or not they also felt that the fire doors you know were an absolute pain and they had all of these power surges constantly so i spoke to several people who lost laptops because they would just you know you had these big surges uh things caught fire you know there'd been a few fires uh from these electrical surges and it may well be that that was what caused the fridge to go but there were lots and lots of things wrong there were also multiple complaints about rubbish being dumped in the stairwells and not being removed the lifts were constantly in and out of action um so there were problems with gas there were problems with electric uh and it just looked the refurbishment that they felt looked quite shabby and is this just a is this the kind of thing that happens in social housing in this country mm. is this a consequence of just the way in which councils and national government think about social housing, i.e. you want to do things on the cheap and you, you know, so on and so on, or is it specific to, to this? 
Um, well, there was quite an interesting um, story that came out of uh, some of the council papers, uh, which shows that um, although obviously the decisions that have been made by the council have been um, criticised for very good reasons and that they could have allocated their money in different ways, part of the reason the budget for the refurbishment was limited was because of um, artificial borrowing constraints that are put on them by governments. This is that they're only allowed... Uh, they've got a very strict cap on the amount they can borrow from their housing revenue account, which is what they, you use to do major repairs and refurbishment. Um, and councils have been lobbying for this cap to be lifted um, for, for a long time. And it, it is seems totally artificial. And, and so there are definitely policy aspects that you can see coming from central government as part of the austerity agenda that did influence this. There's also, I mean, one of the big issues in housing across um, the UK is the fact that there has been, in some cases, managed decline, um, where people try and run down estates so that they can, you know, flog them. But also social housing just hasn't been looked after properly and if you keep if, if you keep up the repairs regularly if you're very um diligent with your repairs and maintenance then you can keep you know like a, a pretty solid housing estate will be good for 100 and i think i think when i looked into grenfell tower um the architect said that it should be perfectly fine for 80 years mm-hmm. Uh, without any kind of big structural problems, but there hasn't been that. Like, and it's built in the sixties. So, yeah, yeah. Um, and so basically, uh, estates around the country have all these big problems. Um, the estate I live on uh, in Lambeth is having uh, water refurbishment now, and that's become a lot more expensive because it wasn't looked after for years and years. And you know, in Lambeth particularly, there are lots of these issues, and it becomes a lot more expensive. And then you try and do it on the cheap and I mean, it's a big problem. Well, it's, it's ironic in a way because um, a lot of these estates where you do see um, kind of managed decline, mm. um, that's often to justify demolition. Yeah, Whereas really. Grenfell Tower is, is a case where, in fact, the council um, opted for refurbishment, which is something yeah. that a lot of residents would, would naturally want rather mm. than, than, than demolition. But refer, refurbishment and, and the installation of this new cladding is one of the main issues that, that, that yeah. have come up because it's the new materials that mm. are the problem it's not the old brutalist mm. buildings which are actually very fire safe and you have this big issue with refurbishments which is that i've never met a resident who doesn't want their who doesn't want their home refurbished but it's the manner in which it's done and that was the same problem with grenfell like they obviously there were you know the cladding was there you know for insulation uh so that you know, during the winter it was warmer, during the summer it was cooler, but it was the manner in which it was done. So um, it was the way they were treated by contractors. A lot of people were threat um, said they were threatened by contractors. Um, the you know the, the contractors never bothered dealing with the fact that some people in the tower didn't have English as a first language. Um, there was very little communication, um, and you know things like. As I mentioned, uh, people wanted the boilers in the kitchen, not in the corridor, and that you know they weren't given that choice. And that I, I think in... those boilers is actually going to be a really key yeah. um, issue that is going to arise from the inquiry if we're talking yeah. about things that are going to come out in the future that we haven't been thinking about now. Mm. Because in in the um, the planning documents, um, uh, which are on the council's website, um, when they're talking about how they installed the boiler, they're saying we had to put pipes in, in every floor in every flat. And to do this, we had to remove fire stopping in the yeah. floors. Um, obviously, the plan was to put them back in, mm-hmm. but there, there's, there's, there's a problem across the construction industry with a lack of expertise in how fire stopping works. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's definitely a question mark about whether that was done properly. And if we find that 
fire has spread through the floors as well as up the cladding. Mm. I think that'd be a pretty crucial development. Mm. Yeah. And there does seem to be some lack of clarity over sort of fire assessments and these things. So the, 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 with the cladding, there is this thing that goes around and says, oh, well, there's a desktop study that says it's okay. That doesn't seem to exist. Um, and then there seems to have been this uh, uh, fire assessor or this, uh, you know, who, who seems to have uh, been brought in by the council f- because he undercut, uh, you know, the, the other people going to do it and specialised in challenging, um, you know, fire brigade assessments. So, so it does seem to me that there is sort of a wider story of, of kind of cost-cutting, cost-cutting, <laughs> cost-cutting here. Um, uh, you know, and it's also, I, I suppose it's also striking that, 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 given the cladding is, is obviously primary um, you know, matter of concern in, in, in this, it seems completely bizarre to me that then, you know, the reviews that we have had, the Hackett review, for instance, doesn't seem to be banning this stuff. So I, I wonder, you know, I, I wonder whether these were all indications that we're not really going to see much change after this. Yeah, well, obviously the government, it was quite odd, wasn't it, when um, the Hackett review finally came out because it didn't recommend... Cladding and, and Dame Judith Hackett went on record saying she doesn't think a ban on combustible cladding would be a good idea. Um, and then the very same day, the government said, yeah. we probably will ban combustible yeah. <laughs> cladding um, and we're going to consult on it. Um, how long that takes mm-hmm. remains to be seen. Uh, as we were talking before, what money goes into replacing what's already been put up remains to be seen. There's far more towers than the ones that we've mentioned that have combustible materials in them. These are just the ones that are the same as Grenfell. And I, I mean... It, I, I initially thought that the fact that the government had gone on record and called their uh, and called their big kind of overhaul of both civil service um, and building regulations and all sorts of health and safety regulations the bonfire of red tape mm-hmm. might do for them, but I just think that we have an extraordinarily weak prime minister. Um, I think another issue is that they're so preoccupied with Brexit that Grenfell gets put to the side. But they just do not want to turn to business and say, you're actually going to have to, you know, build differently. You're actually going to have to put a lot more money into these things. They just, they will not let go of the conservative love of deregulating and standing back and being incredibly laissez-faire. But they're being laissez-faire with people's lives. And this is the issue. And I think the way the Hacker Review was conducted was really instructive about how we kind of form policy Mm. um, in this country because Grenfell United and other survivors groups have have spoken quite a lot about the difficulties that they had in contributing Mm -hmm. to the review. Um, I mean, Dame Judith said repeatedly, oh, we're happy to engage with survivors, but according to the lawyers of representing survivors at the inquiry, this was never really done. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it seemed that um, corporate participants of the review had much more access uh, to Dame Judith. And, and obviously, as we saw, mm. had their views represented in the final mm-hmm. report. I mean, the, the striking, one striking thing that's come out from the inquiry already is this while the fire was happening, a meeting of the Red Tape Initiative. Uh, Tell me a bit more about that. I know Michael Mansfield referred to it. Yeah, yeah. Well, this was actually uh, revealed by, um, I can't remember the name of it, but it's Greenpeace's kind of Mm -hmm. investigative Mm -hmm. outlet uh, in the week following the fire. But it seems extraordinarily that on on the very day of the fire, uh, a group called the Red Tape Initiative 
met specifically to discuss the removal of regulations around what kind of materials you can use in cladding mm-hmm. on high rises, which is, I mean, you couldn't really make this stuff up. And Michael Mansfield, one of the lawyers representing survivors at the inquiry, brought this story up as just an incredible example of the attitude of, of the government and uh, some of the dominant mm-hmm. ideological forces in this country uh, to um, fire safety as opposed to uh, mm. the dominance of market forces. Yeah, I mean, it was incredible just as soon as the fire happened, just how almost everybody sought to uh, cover their back. I, I remember, so obviously I stayed up all night, was at the fire, um, doing all sorts of different things and one of the things I tried to do uh, every time I had a moment near a computer was to save as many documents as possible, tweet them out to try and show people what had happened and so obviously the first thing I did was looked up to see if there was a resident association found that terrifying blog post tweeted it um, and then looked up the refurbishment and I tweeted a um, uh, I tweeted a link to the Ryden page where they uh, listed Grenfell Tower as one of the w- one of the projects they were really proud of. Um, so I tweeted that, and then I tweeted, you know, as a link the specification for it. And about me, I think I did that about maybe three in the morning. And about seven a.m., I was kind of walking uh, back home, uh, and I got a flurry of tweets from people saying that's a broken link, and looked and lo and behold uh Ryden had started taking pages down and all of a sudden a lot of the pages I tweeted from various manufacturers and things were all disappearing um obviously I saved and cashed them all but even very very early on I saw um Nick Paget Brown speaking on uh uh Sky News later um I caught the clip and this much, is the guy who was the Tory yeah 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 I caught the clip much later but I think it was maybe about six in the morning he was on Sky News like and you know he he wasn't stood there saying I feel terrible about this fire it's really awful he just seemed to be instantly trying to defend the council yeah. um because obviously people had picked up quite quickly. It had been refurbished. It shouldn't have gone up in the way it did. Something must have gone wrong. It wasn't just, you know, a kind of house fire that got out of hand. And there is a long history here as well, right? Mm. I mean, it's worth mentioning that the Grenfell is in, you know, in Nottingdale, which is, you know, historically was a slum district. Uh, these, these places get cleared after the war. It's a place where there's a lot of migration, um, you know, a lot of the Windrush generation end up uh, end up there. Um, you know, there was in, in the mid-19th century a wall, a physical barrier between this place and mm. the rather better to do. In fact, I think the wall still exists in parts um, between this place and the rather the better to do on the hill. And you have, you know, so, you know, Grenfell is really, and, you know, <laughs> it's amusing because the initial vision for, for that estate, I think, wasn't built because it was too expensive. So when it was built, it had none of the kind of shops and amenities that, that its initial its architects had initially thought for it. And in the area, you have also Peter Rackman, who is a slumlord. Yeah. He's the, gives rise to the term Rackmanism. So there's a long history here of, of people sort of living cheek by jowl with the extremely wealthy, of massive inequality, uh, and of, you know, uh, you know uh, uh, of these kind of, you know, the story of British social housing in one way, right? Mm. Which is, the, you know, the rise of social housing... Uh, you know, point at which, of course, what is it? A third of Britain lived in in council accommodation. I think in in yeah. uh, at its peak, and then you know you get the decline under Thatcher. So that's that's like one of these stories. But you know, and I think that's yeah, you know, I think that big picture narrative 
really is important here. But the other thing, and so this was, you know, this was widely discussed in the media afterwards, you know, you know, in, in the media, you know, aftermath. Um, but obviously, recently we've had the uh, uh, Andrew Hagen sixty thousand word sixty five thousand words. Sorry, piece in the London Review of Books, which has come under sustained and justified criticism, I think, from people um, involved in in uh, campaigns around Grenfell, and including some of the people that he interviewed for it. It reads very much like a kind of exculpation of these sort of uh, sort of uh, well-meaning but perhaps you know shafted patrician Tories um, whom, whom everyone was out to get and this seems to be setting I think in some ways that the media tone now one of the things about this piece is that it's a substantial piece of work um, but it seems to me riven with this desire to to kind of exculpate the council it seems to me that he's met the councillors and found them persuasive and you might wonder why that is you might wonder the kind of prejudices that people bring to these things uh, but it seems to me throughout that, that it reflects two things one is this this sense of that of conflating political responsibility with guilt right so what he wants to do is say these these people are not guilty that may well be true but they they are politically responsible right mm. they are they are the the most proximate um you know people who, who have political power there the other thing there that seems to, that he seems to get lost in the details, uh, and it it, tell, it says something about the way in which we do not just housing but kind of public services of all kind, right? That there is this kind of massively diffuse uh, series of contractors and uh, bodies and regulations which may and and where responsibility ultimately lies is very hard to determine and that's a feature not a bug of that system it's mm. supposed to be like that mm. right so so in a sense you know you, you can understand you know where he gets that argument from what have you made of the media coverage recently and around this anniversary um well a lot of it as we've already talked about is focused on the the firefighters um but also i think you're right to say that some of them have taken their cue from that o'hagan piece you've seen mm. kind of um, and then the firefighting is part of that. But yeah. there's a whole section in that piece where he talks about uh, the stay put policy. And, and he seems to be the first one who's, who's, who's really brought this up. And he doesn't really consider the other side of the argument that we've talked about um, already. And he also doesn't make the pretty key distinction that a lot of the lawyers representing the survivors who brought up justifiable concerns about stay put did, which is that. They're not criticising the individual firefighters who ran into the tower and pulled people out. They're talking about the decisions that were made in control rooms uh, by people nowhere near the fire or by commanding officers. Yeah, I've. I think Andrew Hagen's piece was a gift to a certain a number of people in the media and and in, in wider circles who hadn't really shown much interest in Grenfell, but clearly felt a bit of annoyance about the fact that this was one of the few stories where there was kind of widespread uh, agreement about most things across the political spectrum. So when I looked to see who was praising it, it was, you know, Ian Martin, who was... And, um, a number of kind of right-wing journalists who were quite, cons- you know, quite conservative had occasionally made complaints about the fact that there were lots of migrants in the tower. Um, you know, had uh, you know, f- were very very keen to uh, talk about that 
tendency, Luke's, Luke mentioned earlier, for ministers to say that these people were being too choosy about their homes, etc. Um, and I think there's a couple of things with Andrea Hagen's piece. One is that um, nobody I know has had the level of access to the council that he has. So he speaks to Rockfield in Mellon, Nick Paget Brown. He speaks to their old family friends. He speaks to almost... You know, he seems to have had access to anybody from the highest person in the council to, you know, your day-to-day uh, housing officer or social worker. And my every journalist I know has basically been blocked at every step by the council. The council are extremely careful with what they tell you. Um, and I wonder if part of the reason why it ended up the way it did I mean he, he points out himself that he thought he was going to write a very different story I wonder if it's the fact that eventually the council thought why don't we just give him as much access as he wants um, in an attempt to get a much more kind of you know a much more positive response um, and that's what happened he was a lot more positive about uh the council leaders etc but there's also i think um one one key error in his i mean what well, there are there are multiple multiple uh technical and factual errors in the piece no because he's uh, not a housing journalist no it's um, quite i think an important yeah and it's just kind of but really not even not even issues that you kind of need an expertise in housing no no, no. really it's like quite like, simple googleable facts mm. about Grenfell and the fire yeah, and flat yeah. building regulations. You can Luke will talk about that in a sec, but I mean, he he ha- he has this idea that everybody was attacking uh, the council workers when at every step I've seen people attacking the political decisions that were made by the council and the fact that the response afterwards hasn't been fully adequate. Um, and instead, he seems to he seems to imply that these poor social workers were being demonised and and that that's not just uh, just not something I've seen. People were angry about councillors, they were angry about political decisions and they were angry that the councillors weren't following up afterwards in that way. But, I mean, as Luke will tell us now, there were multiple, like, er- er- lots and lots of errors. Um, Luke will go through them in a sec, but I wonder if it's partly because of the way that he wrote it. So... He had a team of researchers, um, and they will have done a lot of research. Offered him, uh, offered him the fruits of their research, and he'll and he'll have gone and he'll have gone through and written his piece for the back of it. Um, me and Luke, the way that we've been working is just on our own. We don't have researchers, and it means that I feel an, a, a real closeness to the story. I meet people i interview them i go to meetings constantly i've never seen andrew hagan in a council meeting and if you want to talk about the relationship between count between the council uh, councillors and survivors you need to see that so i wonder if it's a distance that comes from having researchers and then the council love bomb you give you all this access and this is what comes out afterwards yeah i think that's pretty plausible um and and yeah just to run through Maybe a few of them, because we don't have all that much time. Um, but w- one of the key ones that um, was raised uh, in the inquiry as well was by um, was about uh, Bahailu Kabede, oh, the man yes. in whose flat the fire started, um, and um, Andrea Hagen, along with other tabloids in the in the aftermath of the fire, wrote that uh, when he came out of his flat, having uh, uh, rung the, the fire service, um, his suitcase was packed 
in his outside his door as if he was about to mm. to leave uh, and then the tabloids printed all these pictures of him on a holiday from a few years ago and said oh look he's just gone off on holiday straight after the fire um i mean it, it, yeah it's not true and it's quite easy to find out that it's not true but it just ended up getting getting reproduced and it's obscene because i mean one thing i think that doesn't get talked about a lot is exactly how horrible some people have been online about Grenfell Tower. Um, some of the, you know, so, so, some of the people who lived in the estate who've been evacuated uh, just get absolutely uh, hateful things said about them on social media. Um, some of the locals I know uh, who are active on Twitter, if I look at their profile, they just have absolutely horrendous people that are being either you know racist or classist or just putting out all these conspiracy theorists um i've had a number of people who have started kind of obsessively uh kind of cyber stalking me and a couple of other people who live in the local area um and i've had to get the police involved and things like that and if at this point you continue to you know print these lies it it just inflames everything like he, i mean he's been you know he he's he's basically been kind of slandered uh in in the you know in in the press in the social media and you know these people have been through hell anyway and now and now all of these things are being said about them. And, and it means as well, in the case of um, Mr. Kabede, you, you completely ignore the actually really valuable contributions that he's yeah. made to the whole situation. Um, he called the fire brigade almost immediately. He got all of his flatmates out of yeah. the, the flat. He knocked on all of his neighbours' doors mm. on, his, on, the, on his floor to tell them that there was a fire. Um, he turned perfectly. off the electricity in his flat using the fuse box in an attempt to stop the fire spreading. Mm. And then he ran outside and took the first footage of the fire spreading up the yeah. tower, which is going to be crucial in mm. determining... In fact, already has been crucial in determining how the fire got from the kitchen to the cladding. Last question we have a minute um what one major thing would you like our listeners to take away about grenfell and about the politics that, that are still going on about it about the inquiry it's not the cladding it's 40 years of political decisions nationally locally individually um, yeah, that's a, that's a good one. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, because there are so many other um, yeah. facets to it that are all tied up in things, arguments around privatisation and, mm. and outsourcing and things like that. And I think that's something to be aware of. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, Dawn, Luke, thank you for joining me today. Um, obviously, our listeners can follow both your journalism at The Guardian at Inside Housing. Um, both uh, incredibly important and very much worth reading. Uh, and obviously we will continue to talk uh, about the Grenfell fire uh, as the inquiry goes on, um, because I think it's really, really important now for people on the left to keep political pressure on so that change is delivered mm. um, rather than the buck continually passed. This has been Navarra FM. Uh, I have been James Butler. We'll be back at the same time in the same place next week. Bye-bye. This show is brought to you by Navarra Media. To find articles, videos and more audio content like this, head to navarramedia.com. If you've particularly enjoyed this podcast and encourage others to listen to it, why not head to iTunes and as well as subscribing, leave us a review. Navarra Media can exist only thanks to the generosity of our subscribers and supporters. 
If you have the means, please consider subscribing at support.navaramedia.com. As well as helping us continue to produce regular content, subscribers will also receive priority access to events, as well as promotions throughout the year. For regular updates, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Navara Media, media for a different politics.